listeners, welcome to tonight's podcast. This is Paul Gow, one of your regular podcasters, and my friends and colleagues, John LaBelle. Hello, John. Hello, Paul. And Will Kemp. G'day, Paul. Hey, John. And we've got my other favourite podcaster here tonight, Billy Gow. And people haven't met Billy before, but he's my dog. He's not going to contribute, but he's just sitting there in front of the fireplace providing moral reassurance. He looks bored senseless, to be honest, <laughs> but it's early days, Billy. So tonight we're talking about some really interesting health science about milk. You're going to learn all those questions you've always wanted answered. Does milk make you snotty? You're going to learn the answers to those questions too. Does it make, does it make your asthma worse? You'll be able to pick a cow that makes A2 milk from the cow that makes A1 milk. We, we've decided to do this podcast on milk because it occurred to us that we go to the supermarket every week and we see 30, 40 plus milk products, milk-like products, and we just wanted to make sense of it all. But there are, there are so many different things in the market. Um, so we're going to start by going right back in history and thinking about how this bizarre story started, like how did humans start drinking the milk of another mammal? Well, I, I think I might take over there, Paul. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I think actually this is amazing. I, I, when you actually sit down and think that we, as human beings, drink and produce food from another mammal's milk, when you stop to think about it, it does seem really quite bizarre. Um, and how long it's been going on is not quite clear, but there is some evidence of at least 7,000 years, and that's from data from pottery that contained milk products. So there's been some really fancy science that's shown that there were certainly containers that contained milk, and we presume that was for the use of, of eating it. Um, but cattle have obviously been involved in humans in terms of pulling equipment and um, providing meat and milk um, for many, many thousands of years. So it's, it's, a, it's a long history, a long relationship um, between humans and, and cattle. So it dates back, John, to the start of domestication of animals, that sort of era, you know, seven to 10,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah, at least, at least. And of course, back then, it wasn't just cows, but I, I assume your ancestors, probably not mine, but your ancestors were milking anything they could get their hands on. They were milking goats and sheep and buffalo and cows and probably a whole lot of animals that we don't milk anymore. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that um, our ancestors would have observed calves or kids feeding on milk and realised there was a potential for nutrition when they were starving or far, you know, not able to get food, that this was a way of perhaps um, stealing some from nature. So I, I suspect it was through observation and, as we say, thousands and thousands of years ago. And it might seem strange these days to think you're going to start out getting a food source from the teat of another animal. But actually, when you're starving, everything is palatable. I expect that our ancient ancestors, they weren't dying of heart disease and stroke and dementia. They were dying of infections and starvation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's interesting now is that there are a lot of people who, who don't tolerate milk. So, so that, that's an interesting um, concept that I think we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but it's also, it's also interesting that we, most people do tolerate milk. Like, you know, we, we really as mammals, all of us, you know, our mammal cousins and dolphins and dogs and cats, you're designed to be fed from your mother for, you know, several weeks to several months, maybe a year. And during that time, the gut has evolved to metabolise lactose, the sugar in milk of all mammals. But the fact that we... Humans have that enzyme that persists throughout age is bizarre. So it's not bizarre that um, it's not bizarre that we can metabolise it. It's bizarre that the metabolism continues through our adult lives, and that's an evolutionary thing, presumably, isn't it? But it, but it decreases as time goes on. <coughs> the the amount of lactose you can actually break down decreases with time. So there there is an age dependent reduction in your lactase which is the enzyme that's in your small intestine that breaks down lactose which is the sugar that's in milk um, and also there's differences in in different places around the world so if you look around the world geographically there are there are great differences in the amount of lactase 
that's present in different ethnicities and different geographical regions. And as you move away from the equator, people tolerate milk better, don't they? I mean, the sort of Scandinavians are famous for having the most or drinking the most amount of milk. Mm, Is that absolutely. right? Yeah, that's right. And, and the, 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 I guess the areas where there is the least tolerability of lactose in adulthood is in Asian populations, in African populations. Um, and so that you know, commonly we've seen patients who, who report bloating, diarrhoea, um, dis, you know, discomfort in their tummy um, associated with drinking too much milk. And but, that's it, what, but the point you're making, John and Will, is very geographic, meaning right. it's how our ancestors you know, walked out of Africa. Some groups had exposure to domesticated animals 10,000 years ago and some groups didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, actually, the it's the persistence of lactase is actually a, a genetic mutation, but it ha, it, it's quite a strong genetic mutation. It's a, it's an autosomal dominant, which means that it's not related to gender. And if you're a, a parent and you have this gene, which is um, persistence of the enzyme that allows you to to drink milk all your life, um, half of your children will have it. So, so I guess it's also due to the breeding, like your, your own breeding in your society that, that you've come from ancestors for whatever reason have actually had persistence. So maybe in those civilizations, milk was a more important commodity um, because it is incredibly nutritious. Mm. You know? I mean, we may be sort of jumping ahead a bit, but it may. I just wonder whether we should just first define about what we're talking about because you've mentioned lactase and lactose a few times and lactose is the sugar component of milk um, which is a disaccharide you know like sucrose and table sugar is a disaccharide what's, so a, what's a disaccharide will it's got two sort of sugar molecules attached to each other so uh, one bond between these two sugar molecules yeah so they're they're in pairs and and we ingest them and and the body digestive enzymes and juices has to break that down before it can absorb it yeah. um, i mean just to be clear lactose it's not, when we say sugar, we don't mean table sugar. We mean it's a, it's a carbohydrate sugar, and it's comprised of two different sorts of sugar. One is called galactose, and one is glucose, and that's bound together. And that's what forms lactose, which is the, the carbohydrate within milk. And, and your enzymes in your gut break that down and to produce pure glucose, which is a you know, really important fuel for the body, and galactose but if you don't break that down then you end up with that molecule going further down the guts getting into your colon where it gets fermented by bacteria it causes bloating and ingestion you know discomfort so and diarrhea because it can't get absorbed so so the, the, it's important to understand that as well because the exact components of the sugar so and the enzyme the name of the enzyme is lactase yeah in fact you can buy it in a packet you know, there's there's commercial products for people who who don't tolerate much um, milk, and you can actually take a tablet before you have a glass of milk, soft cheese, etc. So if you if you have a lack of lactase and you can't digest that sugar, what are the sort of symptoms that people are going to get? The typical symptoms are nausea, bloating, gas, pain, and diarrhea, and they can vary from really minor to really bad. And it's interesting, the, the bloating part of it, which causes you know, gas and pain, that's almost certainly due to the bacteria in your gut fermenting it. So instead of the lactase enzyme in your small intestine breaking it down and us absorbing it, when you've got lactose intolerance that makes it all its way to your large intestine, the bacteria eat it, they turn into gas, and you get you know, all of those gassy symptoms. There's probably a spectrum, isn't there, I think, in, in this regard, in that there's some people that might only get those symptoms after consuming a lot of milk, whereas some people will be very sensitive, have no active enzyme, and will get it after consuming a couple of mouthfuls. Absolutely. Um, even, in, even in children, there are cases of absolute lactase deficiency. And in those infants, they're unable to feed and are really quite unwell. And... The other extremes are people who have mild lactase deficiency as they grow older. And so they notice that when they get into their 50s or 60s, they, they no longer can tolerate milk or milk products um, to the extent they used to be able to. 
And as as we said before, there is a definitely a geographical and also ethnic difference. So so that may be more pronounced in people from Asian backgrounds and also from Africa. Now, John, I'm worried that fans of the Liver Health podcast may be thinking, getting confused between lactulose and lactose. Could you just clarify for our listeners the difference there? Because, of course, we've talked about lactulose as treatment of hepatic encephalopathy, but that's different to the sugar in milk, isn't it? But they sound the same. They do, they do. And um, those people who listen to the Liver Health podcast um, a number of episodes ago will remember that we use lactulose as a laxative, but it's made from a combination of fructose and galactose. And that combination of sugars cannot be broken down by any enzyme in the body, and it therefore gets into the colon, but the bacteria can break it down, produce gas, which causes flatus or wind, and that can cause abdominal cramps, but also acts as a laxative. So, so we use lactulose as a laxative. But if you have lactose, but you can't break it down because you have a deficiency in lactase, that will cause similar symptoms. It can cause diarrhea, abdominal pain, cramps. But there are other circumstances as well where you can get an acquired lactase deficiency. And in fact, I've had this. I went to India and I once got quite sick. And, and during that recovery period for about six weeks, I couldn't drink any, anything which had milk or soft cheese in it. It creates more diarrhea than I had before. So, so people do get, um, can get an acquired lactase deficiency if they've had a recent gastrointestinal infection. You can get it in some other conditions such as celiac disease and Crohn's disease. Um, but, but by far the most common cause is a, a lactase deficiency that develops as you get older. But milk, it's not just its not just like salt and water and sugar, is it? There's more stuff in it that's good for you? I, mean, I think there's a reason that it is so highly conserved amongst all mammals. They all produce milk and their infants you know, feed on that milk and that is able to sustain them, that exclusive to all other foods, and it allows them to grow. So, you know, milk is this superfood, John's just told us, you know, it's got everything we need. And then why, you know, what are we doing pasteurising it, whatever that is, and homogenising it, whatever that is. Why aren't we drinking raw milk like in the good old days when everyone was fit and healthy? I mean, John's told us milk's got protein, fat, sugar. It's almost the perfect culture medium to grow bugs in. Um, and it does have bugs in it. It's got some bugs that actually might be good for our gut, you know, lactobacillus and these sort of bugs which you know we might share. But it, it has also the potential to contain pathogens and nasty bacteria and nasty viruses. Um, things that I'm sure people have heard of, things like Campylobacter, Salmonella, even some tuberculous um, bacteria can live within milk. And so we've got to somehow try and kill those. The other one that I think is common and, and worth mentioning is Listeria, which is a nasty bug. And that can cause a gastroenteritis sort of illness, but it can also enter the bloodstream and make people very unwell. It can cause uh, encephalitis, infect the brain, and infect the sort of lining of the brain, um, ca- causing meningitis. Okay, well, you've convinced me. I don't want to drink fresh udder milk. Thank you. Um, so t- tell me, how, how do we prevent those diseases? And j- just, just to pause there, <laughs> I'm really offended, just Johnny. You can only see his expression, listeners. <laughs> I think you went to say, let's just circle back for a second. Should we just go back like, a little bit like the. Let's go back to the, like, I think it's because it's interesting with the listeria and pregnant women and milk and cheese. Yeah. Because that's, anyone who's been pregnant or their partner's been pregnant or knows someone who's been pregnant knows there's this story about not being able to eat soft cheese. What's, you know, what's that and what's that got to do with milk or cheese? Yeah, I mean, listeria, of course, is not just in milk, but it's in milk products. Um, So cheese and yogurts. And it's also in a lot of deli foods. So raw meats and... Salmon and fishes and cured meats and sushi. So these are all things that it's often recommended that pregnant women don't eat because pregnant women are particularly prone to contracting listeria because of changes in their immunity during pregnancy. And it can also, of course, cause significant infection in the fetus, um, which is life-threatening. John, no, no, sorry, I interrupted you before. You're going to say some sage comments. <laughs> not really, not really. I, I was just going to say that um, you've convinced me not to drink fresh milk from the udder, but what is the process by which we can safely drink milk without getting any of those horrible infections? So fresh milk straight from the udder is called raw milk, um, and 
people can buy that, but most of the milk products and cheeses that we consume uh, undergo a process of heating, which we call pasteurisation. And that process of heating is designed to kill these bugs but preserve the nutrient quantities, qualities of milk. And actually, Will, I don't think you can buy raw milk. I think it's illegal yeah, to right. sell raw milk in Australia and yeah. I think most other Western countries because of the risk of you know, bacterial infection. And I think even, even until quite recently, you couldn't buy cheese that was from unpasteurised milk. Up until really quite recently, so, so in Australia you couldn't buy gorgonzola and other other cheeses. Up until a couple of years ago, um, let's talk about what what the milk looks like if you've if you've pasteurised it. Um, I remember having some milk that had been boiled or you know pasteurised in in a farm, and um, I was given a glass of this milk, and I put it to my lips, and it kind of stuck to my lip, and then I had to chew through this sort of layer of rubbery cream. And then I got to some sort of thinner milk at the bottom, and it was a bit watery at the bottom. Um, so, so that's really how milk would come if it if it was allowed to stand. It would it would become layered. Can we talk a little bit about homogenization and what that's about? But what you describe there, John, is not that's not from pasteurization. No, that's just the natural. Yeah, that's just raw. That's that, normal milk. That's yeah, what milk does. But that's what happens if you if you leave if you even if you pasteurized it if you left it. The, the natural densities of the different components of milk would settle themselves down. So, so if you had a bottle of milk, and, and I, I do remember this as a kid, having, having milk delivered by the milkman, and, and actually there would always be a thick layer of cream. So in fact, when you turn the bottle upside down, for a moment, nothing would come out. It's, it's that comment they use about wool camp all the time. The cream always rises to the top. <laughs> That's where it came from. It's very kind, Paul. But you know the, the, the point is, is the that cream it, feels it's more around my centre <laughs> at the moment. But uh. but the, the point is, is that milk actually has natural densities, and if you were to leave it in a bottle, the the cream would float to the top, the less dense milk would be be next, and there would be a watery layer at the bottom, and and actually that is not very palatable. People don't like chewing a drink. Um, which is what, how chewy the milk is at the top. It's creamy. Um, so actually they produce this method of homogenization, which is basically where you pass the milk through a very fine gap between two steel blades and it breaks down the, the size of the fat globule from about 3.5 microns to 1 micron. And it allows, therefore, the milk fat to lie in suspension with the water and the protein and so that it doesn't settle into levels if you leave I, it. I like my milk to have like the fat, like two microns, John. Just a Do, little bit well, of extra fat. Well, one micron is used first, and then they use to do it again. And the reason why they do it again through a different homogenizing device is because actually even the one micron fat globules tend to homogenize together and form little clusters. So they go through a second phase, which then breaks them all up. So that's why we have when you pour a glass of milk after two days being in your fridge. It's exactly the same at the top as it is in the bottom because it's been homogenised. So that's all about palatability and pasteurisation is all about safety. Absolutely. And pasteurisation has been around for a long time. Um, and it was, everyone knows the story, was you know, pasteurisation named after who? I'm guessing Louis Pasteur. That's Otherwise, right. yeah. I don't know where we're going. A couple of hundred story. years ago. And he, of course, was doing the really hard work on making sure your wine and beer didn't go off. He wasn't worried about your milk. That uh, was all, you know, all of the science went into making sure your wine and beer didn't go off after a while. And, of course, it, the principle with current pasteurisation of milk was just heating it up to, you know, just 50 or 60 degrees is enough to kill all the bugs. And there were these... I, I, can I interject? Feel free, John. So that's, that's pasteurisation. What is, what is this UHT business? But I, I, I would like you to explain to me UHT. What's UHT? So, so we Paul just mentioned pasteurisation heats up the milk to seventy degrees or something like that. But UHT, or some people call it long life milk, they heat the milk up to even higher temperatures, sort of double, um, so one hundred and sort of forty degrees, and that probably kills even more of the bugs leaving the milk almost sterile. And then if it's packaged under sterile conditions, then that milk can survive in a container for months, if not years. Um, and so that's what's in the sort of cardboard containers in the supermarket that's and labelled just so UHT. That milk, that's that milk you can take camping, you don't need to yeah, preach necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the UHT milk, I mean, the, the, the efforts to make UHT milk date back from the, the 1800s. 
when they, they realised that, that you could heat it up to a higher temperature and preserve it for longer. But the problem was, was they didn't have sterilisation. And so they didn't have really efficient means of packaging. And it was only really a Scandinavian company which developed a, a carton made out of cardboard that they could sterilise and put the milk in once it's been ultra-heat treated. And actually, they, they devised the machine that can do it. And that company's still, still producing it. Um, and interestingly, some countries, in terms of the proportion of the milk drunk, UHT is, is a very high proportion. In others, it's very low. I know it's meant to have the same sort of nutritional qualities, the sort of same amount of fats and carbohydrates and, and protein. But I've got to say, when I've had UHT, I think it tastes different. Oh, it's been altered. And, and in fact... So the um, heating process probably yeah. does do something to it because it's not quite the same as fresh yeah. milk. Well, some of the proteins obviously get denatured, um, but also you know there is a process where if you, if you if you heat it for too much, you actually get decolorization and you get yellowing of the milk as well. So it's often not as white as as other milk. I went for a walk with my walking friend on the weekend, John, and he told me he was going to the supermarket to buy cold pressed milk in Woolies. Never heard it's of it. It's our local supermarket. No one knows. So cold-pressed milk, I looked it up because I'd never heard of it. It's a an alternative way to sterilise milk. So instead of heating it, it's put into a cold chamber and pressurised. So this is a another way to get rid of all the germs, really, out of your raw milk that is as equivalent as pasteurisation. And what's the attractiveness for purchasing cold-pressed milk over pasteurised milk? Look, it's... From my point of view, it's the same product, um, but it it is it has got an advertising advantage over the com- competition. Well, th- th- this I think is a really good move for us to go onto a different topic, which is about the milk that I've seen in the supermarkets and not really understood at all, and it's A two milk. Do you, do you know much about this? I, I know about this, John. This I'm sure this is true. A two milk cows have black spots and a white background, and A1 milk have white spots and a black background. Is that true? No, that's not true. You sure? <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is very fictitious. But, but there, is, there, is, there is some adage in that um, I think A2, A2 cows generally have colour, so the brown cows generally have A2, but it's more to do with the genetics. And do you know the story? Because it's an amazing story. I don't know the story. Okay. No. So, so the story is, is that... Um, there's a New Zealand company which produces a milk called A2 milk and basically last century there were some genetic tests that showed that not all cows are equal and that the beta casein which is one of the proteins that's produced in milk can have a variation and that there are herds that produce A1 or A2 as a variation in the milk and so lots of herds these are, these are dairy herds, are, are a mixture of A1 and A2. And the A2 company, I think, really did a really clever thing. They had a genetic test. They showed that there were, there were these A1 and A2 cows, and they selectively kept in herds A2 milk because actually breast milk is predominantly A2 milk from, Human humans, milk. from humans. And the, the theory is, is that many thousands of years ago although it wasn't recognized until really the last century because the the technology wasn't there to recognize it but they they suspect that probably about eight maybe more thousand years ago a genetic mutation developed in in the domesticized herds of dairy and a a1 started to be introduced and because of lots of farming practices and sharing of cattle basically this new new mutation a1 beta casein got introduced into the herds. It wasn't recognized because no one had any tests. And as time went on, more and more mixing of the herds occurred. But generally, if you've colored a colored skin of a cow, it's more likely to be A2 than it's A1. But the, the really interesting thing is that there is suggestion that maybe A2 is healthier and that A1 milk doesn't get absorbed so well that it causes gastrointestinal symptoms that go above and beyond any measure of someone's lactase deficiency that's the enzyme in their small bowel but actually there may be health benefits in a2 now it's not it's not absolutely known yet and of course there's always some concern when 
there is some vested interest by a company which is producing a certain milk. And that the A2 milk company is you know, introduced into Australia. It's a significant proportion of our market. There's introduction to China. There's been attempts to enter the, the UK market, I think up until 2019 when it stopped, probably because of COVID, uh, and also the US. But you know, the really interesting thing is this is actually the protein that we are used to drinking as infants. It's the A2 beta casein protein. And, and it's hypothesized that it may be healthier. And if you, I mean, A1 protein, it gets digested in our gut and can form some chemicals which have been proposed to cause some gut symptoms, pain and bloating and things not that dissimilar to what you mentioned with lactase deficiency. Yeah. I mean, the, there is some measurable opiate-like drugs. So opiate is, is like morphine, it comes from the poppy, but we have our own natural receptors for, for these similar proteins in our, in our body. And, and it's true that A1 milk um, can be broken down to these opiate-like compounds that then can attach to our opiate receptors. And that, and that is why there is some um, suggestion that there may be symptoms of abdominal pain and discomfort um, because actually morphine can sometimes cause nausea and abdominal discomfort. So it's thought that maybe it's because of this opiate receptor in humans. So if you get those symptoms, it may not be just due to your lactase deficiency. It may be that, in fact, you're reacting to the protein and trying an A2 milk, if you're desperate to have milk, is a reasonable next step. That, that, is, that is what is proposed. Um, I, I don't think the jury is, is really convinced. Yeah, it may just be a way to charge more for a milk. Yeah, it is. It, it's, quite, it's quite a lot more expensive. Um, I, I've... My wife bought me a bottle um, yesterday. I could tell no difference in the taste. Um, but I think, I think the whole story of milk and potential health issues is really interesting. But just to go back to the A2, like my reading of the literature is it definitely de- makes some minor difference to digestion, meaning it is probably easier to digest than A1 milk. And maybe people who get some minor gut symptoms, maybe it's worth trying an A2 milk. But I could see no other difference between A2 and A1 milk in any other parameter apart from sort of minor gut symptoms. I mean, there are lots of studies, and some of them look like they're quite good, but they're they're generally small numbers. They're not not tens of thousands. They're not thousands of people. They're they're two-digit numbers, you know, 60 60 students versus another 60 students. And it was... A lot of the stuff is about reporting, self-reporting of abdominal symptoms associated with with milk one people thing that people have mentioned about drinking milk is that it can increase mucus production and sometimes make people feel a bit sort of mucusy at the back of their throat and i think the jury's still out as to whether this is a sort of real thing or just related to the milk proteins that you're drinking but i did read that one of the chemicals that a1 milk is broken down to and is digested to this chemical called bcm7 actually may stimulate um, mucin production by glands at the back of the throat and, and maybe a reason why A1 milk or milk containing A1 casein protein may be more mucinogenic than A2. I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting story. I mean, I've, done, I've done a lot of research on mucus and milk. Have you? And I'll tell you the answers after this short break. Oh, a teaser. The summary of my mucus and milk story is this. Two things. One, there is an association between milk intake and allergy you know, like eczema, asthma, um, and that reducing dairy in your diet can help those things. So that's important. But separately, there's been this story that milk makes you snotty, you know, phlegmy. Mm. And the scientific evidence that I could find is all negative. And there was a really interesting, like, 40-year-old randomised controlled trial. They got 40 people. 20 of them got given a drink of water. 20 of them got milk supplements. And then everybody got infected with a cold virus and they measured how snotty their tissues were. So they weighed their tissues. Horrible study, but that's what they did. And there was no difference in, you know, the snottiness of the tissues in those given milk or just water. And there's there's other studies suggesting the same thing that doesn't make any difference. I mean, there is an important other allergic condition which we manage, and that's eosinophilic esophagitis which has been associated with milk and 
if you do an elimination diet, um, quite a fair proportion of those patients will improve if you eliminate dairy from the diet. Um, but I think the mucus story, I think that's still not been solved because if you had a virus introduced, that's not what this is really about. The, the story is that people get mucus just because of the milk, not they get more mucusy when they have a virus because that's what that question really was, was answering. But I, I think there are still people who are absolutely sure, convinced that they get stuffy and that they notice that their mucous membranes are, are more engorged and that they feel a little bit lethargic um, and don't feel as clear-headed. Is an A1, A2 phenomenon, though, John, do you think? Or? No, no I, I'm, I'm just talking about general milk. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to break it down to the A1, A2, because I, I, th- I feel that that is a, a complicated issue which we don't quite have enough data yeah. on yet. Yeah. And maybe the, the snot thing, maybe it's an allergy phenomenon. You know, the if we're saying it does exacerbate asthma and eczema, then maybe it does the same thing with hay fever as well. One of the things I found really interesting in reading some papers around milk was that I think I was wrong in my perception that drinking milk, particularly as a child, but even as an adult, getting all that extra calcium, because milk's quite high in calcium, is really good for your bones. It increases the strength of your bones, the density of the bones, and by doing that, that will stand you in good stead as you get older and you do start to lose some bone mass as you get older, you can develop osteoporosis. Building up your bones before then actually might prevent that from happening and therefore prevent fractures. I mean, am I alone in thinking that this is a real advantage of consuming lots of milk? I mean, a lot of societies recommend having three glasses of milk a day to get your calcium levels up to, a, you know, 1,000 milligrams. Like, that's what we've, we've been sold, this. Like, that's the, the, you know, the sort of lay press... Um, information is that we need dairy products to keep our bone mass. But I don't think even, well, I don't think even yeah, you didn't even question that sort of data. That was just that was fact, as you said. But but yeah, reading some of the papers around milk, you know, there is doubt about the evidence for that. You need calcium to make your bone strong, and you need other minerals like vitamin D, essential to make your bone strong. It doesn't matter where you get that from, and milk is a good source of calcium, but by drink by increasing the amount of calcium that you intake as a child does not necessarily improve your bone strength and it does not prevent the development of fractures later on in life and some nice studies have been done supplementing calcium in adults and when you do that bone density does increase a small amount a percent or two but when you stop that calcium it drops back down to the baseline and there's no improvement in the rates of fractures. So, so you're saying, really, Will, you don't need dairy products to keep your bones strong? Yeah, you have need a, a balanced of, diet. I have think. a bit of calcium in your diet, but it can come from plants. Yeah, it can come from, from any source of calcium. And, and milk is a good source of calcium, but it's not the only source of calcium. And so I think that is a good message if you, if you are lactose intolerant or intolerant to the proteins or feel like you develop allergies, then you do need to seek calcium somewhere else. But, you know, that, that's fine. That's perfectly healthy and perfectly good for your bones. Can we, can we diverge a second to the elephant in the room? <laughs> oh, well, I'm not talking John. about me. You, you always take it personally. No, no, I, I, I'm talking about the elephant in the room. And that is these other products which have been given the label milk, which aren't from a cow. And, and this gets back to the whole story about visiting a supermarket and seeing literally 50 products. So there's almond milk, there's walnut milk, there's coconut milk, there's all these other milks. Are they, are they beneficial for us? Or, or is, this, is this too big a topic? Do we need to just concentrate on dairy milk? Oh, God, who wants to tackle this one? I mean, it's well, a, it's it's got, hold on, it's got here. Let me just check here. Plant milks, general comments, JL. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there's a running Back to sheet, you, John. And it's, um, okay. Well, since you put it like that, <laughs> should well, we deal with? Should we deal with it? Uh, should we deal with it now. I reckon it's such a big topic that we. Hey, should do you do know it. the answers? I I know. Yes, I know all the answers. Okay, but I I do feel like it's such a big topic that perhaps we should focus this particular podcast purely on the cow and forget the elephant in the room. Like I, I think they need to be talked about because people. 
drink them, I want to know about them, but it could be separate. Yeah. And also fermented milks like cheese and yogurts. That's a really interesting story. And that could be... I think that has to be a separate podcast as well because there's actually um, you know, very interest pro- interesting properties yeah. of cheese. I mean, I might just add, just while we were talking about lactose... Are we recording tons, or are we going on? We're recording. Yeah. Up until that moment. This is still part of the show. Yes. Yeah. Well, so just one other interesting we're thing. We're recording. About, is anyone still listening? That's the question. <laughs> really interesting thing about lactose intolerance is also cheeses because some cheeses soft cheeses have a lot of lactose in them we did this at the start of it we did this at the start of the night john no we didn't talk yeah about we that. did yeah did we my yeah. running Hard cheese cheese and soft cheese. we're going to talk about growth in kids oh maybe we are should are we all working from the same <laughs> the same sheet <laughs> i'm i'm just going to take a little um walk <laughs> i'll be back in a minute one of the really interesting things i came across was the studies associating milk as a child with your height. And the conclusion of the scientific literature is that kids given milk grow taller than kids given no milk. So, and there are, you know, there's a scientific basis for this. There's growth hormones inside milk. And the more milk kids have, the taller they grow. And, of course, the end of it is, you know, maybe you grow another couple of centimetres if you're a kid who really has a lot of milk than a kid who has no milk. But it, it does make a difference. It's quite extraordinary. I, mean, I must admit I was blissfully unaware of that. My boys would be thrilled with that because they do consume lots of milk. Like I didn't know, really didn't know about it either until the research. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting is there's a, a soft association between the more milk you have and the more hip fractures you have. So this debate about does milk help your bones... Wait, so you're saying the more milk, <coughs> the more likely you are... To fracture a bone. So the opposite of what you might think. Correct. Right. Like we've been sold this story that milk keeps your bones strong. Yeah. But actually you're saying the story is milk probably does nothing for your bones. Yeah. And there's some data suggesting the converse, that milk maybe, you know, somehow makes your bones worse. And one of the studies reported that the more milk in your diet as a child, the more likely you might have a hip fracture. And the explanation was that it was not because your bones are weaker, it's that you're taller, you know, Adolescents who have a lot of milk end up as taller adults. They have the same bone density as kids who don't drink milk. But when they fall over and they're six foot two, compared to five foot eleven, they're more likely to break their hip because they're falling from a bigger height. So that's also yeah, that's really quite an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, that's amazing. Milk has a lot of un- unexpected effects. There's all this, like, you know, the biggest selling milk in the supermarket, or the second biggest selling apart from the standard milk, isn't A2. It's skim milk or, yeah. you know, low fat milk or. I'm a low fat milk because I think I've just got used to the taste. I mean, I, I think it's quite interesting about the semi-skim, skimmed, full-fat milk story. And again, I think this is a problem that's covered in, in a few books, I think it's even covered in your book, Paul, about the, the myth that everything had to be low-fat. I, I think this is a myth that um, many, many of us, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s have grown up with, uh, and it was really... Um, produced from the Cardio- Cardiovascular Society of America that really thought that having high fat was bad for cardiovascular disease. You know, literally coronary artery disease came from high fat. And actually, it hasn't really been borne out. And and the problem is, that in fact, if you look at some of the replacements for high fat, they're actually low fat but high sugar. So, so the problem is some of the replacements, so if you look at yogurts, for example, they will be marked as low fat but actually they'll have quite a few teaspoons of sugar in to give them flavour. But, but in milk, it's quite interesting because there, there has been concerns about whether it's related to type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. In type 1 diabetes, there was originally a thought that some of the proteins in milk may cross-react with the pancreas and actually predispose you to autoimmune type 1 diabetes but that hasn't really been borne out in studies in type 2 diabetes the feeling was that you know could, could milk promote this and originally there there were some studies that suggested this was possible um, but subsequent meta-analyses so these are analyses of very large numbers suggest that actually that wasn't true and there may even be a weak association with a negative relationship with with type 2 diabetes so and, so john does milk make you fat? Well, you know, that's, that's another thing that's been studied, and it's, again, fascinating. Um, a Scandinavian study looked at comparing full-fat milk 
with skimmed milk. And actually, in that study, people who had full-fat milk lost weight compared to those that had skim milk. So, And, and it was proposed that actually the full-fat milk, the fat gave you a feeling of satiety, it filled you up, and it stopped you eating later. Whereas the, the skimmed milk or the you know, semi-fat basically didn't fill you up as much and made you hungrier later on in the day. So, so the evidence that having skimmed milk will make you lose weight, it's a bit, it's a bit like the story of Diet Coke. Um, then they're both that and we'll, we'll discuss that in another podcast but th- there is no concrete evidence that changing the amount of fat in your milk will actually make you lose weight that will come as a surprise to a lot of people though because that is sold as dogma that you know the fat you know you reduce the amount of fat you intake will help control weight you, eat, but that, you eat that's, that's sold on the hypothesis that calories causes weight gain and it's not that simple yep. you know that's part of the equation and not even calories but the you know, the type of calories. Like yeah. if you eat fat, it, that fat translates into fat in your body. And that's that's not the case. In fact, your body, most of the fat you eat doesn't sort of suddenly appear in your belly or on your hips or something like that. I, I think we've discussed this really in the... When we were talking about the liver, we were talking about the liver as the most complicated laboratory um, in the human body. And if you were to think of it in terms of what you put into a chemical reaction, if you were to put a a group of compounds into a chemical reaction and you called it semi-skim milk and you put a completely different set of compounds called full-fat milk into the chemical equation, would you expect the same things to come out? Well, you won't. And the, and the gut is also where all this is all mixing up. So your gut bacteria are different depending on what sugars and fats are within the food that you eat. So, so it is, as you say, Paul, it's incredibly much more complicated than we, we've try to indicate by just looking at calories it's interesting there is a literature around um not so much low fat versus high fat milk but in fact fermented milks may be useful for weight and metabolic health so yogurts and so forth um, yeah i think can, that can be very beneficial like the just to distill it all down my understanding of the literature is milk does not make you gain weight low fat milk compared to normal milk no difference at all in any significant metabolic parameter and the the point you're making will about fermented milk so yogurt really interesting i think so what's that tell, tell us again about that story what does well, it do i don't do? know i don't really understand the explanation i'm not even sure the explanation for that phenomenon is is known but there is a relationship between people that eat fermented milks and yogurts in particular and weight and in fact it may help weight loss so it can be a really useful tool and it Probably, or at least it's suspected it relates to the um, bacteria that it, it lives within these sort of fermented foods, and that might assist our gut microbiome in digestion um, and all the hormones that our gut microbiome secrete that can assist in weight loss. So it's probably really complex, but it's a, it's a fascinating observation. Yeah, so yogurts really are, are, I think, a really healthy food. But again, you've got to buy the right yogurt. So look on the back of the bottle. If it's got added sugar or added other stuff, don't buy it. There's a whole lot of natural yogurts which have got nothing added really, which is what you should be buying. What about other health benefits of milk? Paul, have you anything on cancer or survival and these sort of factors which are clearly important? Yeah, so the I'll tell you the answer and then the sort of methods maybe. So... Milk doesn't essentially does not make any difference to your risk of developing a cancer. So that's what that's what you need to know. And there, but there's been concerns because milk has, as we talked about before, with if you're a kid who drinks milk, you end up tall. It's got growth factors in it, and growth factors theoretically can cause cancers because they make tissues grow. That's what a cancer is: is uncontrolled tissue growth. But reassuringly, the literature is that it makes no difference in risk of any cancer. So that's good news. I mean, you look at the really important outcome like survival. I mean, there's no difference in survival in terms of people that drink milk versus no milk or low-fat milk versus high-fat milk. So milk's really nutritious. It's got lots of minerals, lots of vitamins, lots of essential proteins and can be really useful. However, um, you know, you can probably choose what milk you want to drink based on taste and your personal preference. Have you heard um, about the issue with milk and acne? Feels like a joke coming no, out. No, 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 no. It's, it's true. It's. I mean, I, I think there. It's again. It's. It's probably not completely clear from the literature, 
But there is a suggestion that dairy products, including milk and cheese and other dairy products, may be associated with increased um, acne and possibly increased scarring associated with acne. Uh, and, and, you know, there have been meta-analyses that have suggested there is a positive relationship. But the problem is, is the studies are very, very different and and how the endpoints are classified it's it's quite quite muddy data so is it does it cause acne john does it yeah, make so acne worse so there's evidence there's evidence that that um taking it out from your diet can improve it and yeah, okay. that the introduction of it or having higher levels can make you more more prone to it okay i wonder if we should touch on the different types of milk that you know, we've we've talked that you know you can choose a milk based really on your preference and and what you like to taste. But there are an enormous variety of milks when you go to the supermarket. I mean, how do you choose which milk? There's oat milk, almond milk, dairy milk, cow's milk, sheep milk, goat milk, high protein, low protein, high carb. I mean, it, it's endless. And and you know, it, it must depend a little bit on the the customer. You know, if you if you have a a belief in organic, then you, you, you'll go straight for the organic milk. If you if you feel that you've got allergies, you're you're probably not going anywhere near the dairy milk, or you may go towards the A two milk. So it's I, th- I think the reason why there are so many types of milk and milk products on the shelves is because there is so much out there about possible health and possible um, disease associations, um, and it's not quite clear. The market is really quite open for people for independent choice about what they want. Yeah, I mean, my take on it is that you know, milk is is one very important nutritious food, and you need to fit that into the type of diet you want to have. So, if you're aiming for a low fat diet, then choosing a milk that is consistent with that approach and is lower in fat, you know, makes perfect sense. Um, if you're after a sort of low carb diet. Um, then choosing a milk that's particularly low in carbohydrate and sugar might make sense. You know, maybe an almond milk, maybe that's better. But um, I don't think nutritionally there's a lot to choose between the different varieties of milk. Look, when it comes, if we if we want to summarise where I think we've got to, I don't think there's any effort, any difference between any of the dairy milks in any really important endpoint. Maybe minor differences, as we've said, with A2 and your ability to digest it if you've got a sensitive gut, but nothing, you know, with respect to big important endpoints like heart disease or stroke or diabetes, weight, blood pressure, uh, premature death, cancer, no difference with any milks or no difference between milk and non-milk drinkers. So would I be happy for my kids to be milk drinkers? Yes. And my kids are milk drinkers. Would I drink milk? Yes. I have, I don't especially like milk, but I'll have full fat milk or milk in a smoothie. Very happy to drink it. John? Yeah, I, I love it, and all my kids do as well. Um, I do think it's amazing that we're three doctors and we're used to reading scientific papers, and yet there is no really clear-cut answer. And if there was, it would be very clear on the label that you should be drinking this milk because of this condition, or you should be avoiding this milk because of that condition. And I think it's we've mentioned it before in previous podcasts about the, the regulation of drugs compared to the regulation of food products. And actually, there's a lot of marketing with food, um, as is actually there is marketing of drugs, but the regulation in terms of what you can put inside the, the carton in drugs is, is very much regulated, and what you can say it can do um, is very regulated. Um, yet you can produce 40 different sorts of milks in a supermarket, all insinuating benefits in a certain direction, but the data is not really there to support all these claims. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I agree with both those comments. I think it's extremely complex, and I think the field of sort of nutritional science is really in its infancy, and we are learning more and more about the potential benefits and potential harms of certain foods, and and changing, you know, the way we think about these macronutrients. We used to think that eating fat was really bad, and and now eating carbohydrate is 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 sort of is the enemy um so our thinking has changed and we just i think we need to just follow the science and adapt to it in terms of milk i think milk is extremely nutritious i think it's it's got a huge amount of protein uh, it's got 
Great macronutrients, great micronutrients. So I think it's a great drink. My kids drink lots of it. I don't drink a lot of milk because actually the taste just doesn't agree with me. Can I can I end maybe today's podcast with an amazing story? Yeah. So and I don't know if you know this story, Paul Mill. Do you know the story about the Fisher or the student student Fisher exact test or the student test? No. It's a statistic test. You will know it. It's it's basically a test when you've got um, a, a either positive or a negative outcome that can happen and actually it was an amazing as a statistician in england and there was this woman who was on a pier who claimed that she could tell the difference between tea that had the milk put in before or after the tea was put into the cup and he thought this was ridiculous and so he went home and he wrote out a formula to prove that this woman was just guessing that it was just some trickery and he went there and he, he got her to, to taste these cups of milk with tea. Some he'd put the water in first and some he put the milk in first. Because in England, of course, the, the, apparently the way is to put the milk in first. And he did the test on her and she passed. He, he actually proved that she could tell the difference. And it was I think over 150 years later that actually they did the tests on the actual tea and milk and could prove that when you pour milk into hot tea, it denatures the, the milk in a different way to if you pour tea into milk. And it actually denatures the protein and has a different flavour. And they did it, they proved it. You know, the biochemistry was different. But this is all about milk and how it's affected by hot tea. I've never heard of that story before. Was it amazing? It's amazing. It's an amazing people's story. I don't know about amazing. It was an okay story. Do you want to wrap this up? Look, that was a I, – I really enjoyed learning really about, about the facts I need to know. You know, I've drunk milk for 50 years. I'm going to drink it for another 30 years, but at least now I know the facts about where to spend my money when I'm in the dairy section of the supermarket. And thanks very much to my contributors tonight, Will. Thanks, Will. Pleasure, Paul. And John. Thank you, Paul. Thank and, you, Will. And to Billy, our favourite – um, podcaster. Good night, Billy. Good night, Billy. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Liver Health Pod. We hope you found it interesting and entertaining. But remember, while we are doctors, we are not your doctor. You are unique and you deserve personalised medical advice, which is essential for making informed decisions about your health and well-being. Because the information presented in this podcast is general in nature, it may not be relevant to your circumstances. It is not a substitute for professional advice from your healthcare professional. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organisations we work for. In fact, those organisations don't even know that we've made this podcast. So if you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe. You can also leave a review and a rating which will help others find us. Thanks for listening. Till next time.